for listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. All right, we are in the middle of our series about the gospel, calling it King Jesus to the Rescue, and now we're getting to the meat of it. The first week we talked about prevenient grace, which is the grace that God gives to everybody all over the world, no matter what. And then the second week we talked about uh, how the Old Testament fits into that and how the gospel is the story of God's redemption of the whole world. And today, today we're going to talk about the cross. So we are in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 37. And uh, we're picking up exactly after we left off last week. He says, my brothers, Paul is preaching the the word of God to to the people in in the, the synagogue. My brothers, you descendants of Abraham's family and others who fear God... To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. Because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize him or understand the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those words by condemning him. Even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they'd carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, where they are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God has promised to our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As to his raising from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy promises made to David. Therefore he has said in another psalm, you will not not let your holy one experience corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, died, was laid before his ancestors, and experienced corruption. But he whom God raised up experienced no corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that though this, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Therefore, beware, therefore, that, you, that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish. For in your days I am doing a work a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So y'all, I've gone to church my whole life. I've been a Christian for most of it. And I've heard the gospel story preached hundreds if not thousands of times. Jesus 
died for our sins and rose again, taking our place. But I've got to admit to you that there is one aspect of the gospel that I've never been able to fully wrap my head around. Okay? I've never been able to fully understand why did Jesus have to die in order for our sins to be forgiven? Right? And I trust that he did die for our sins to be forgiven. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe that the Bible teaches that he, Jesus took our punishment and took our place so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be saved. I'm not trying to call that into question. But like, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did anybody have to die in order to accomplish this? Why couldn't God have forgiven our sins without having someone die for them? It seems to me that Jesus could have just decided to forgive, that God could have decided to forgive sins without any bloodshed being involved. Couldn't he have just waved his hand and say, okay, I forgive your sins without having to send his son to die on the cross? Right? If God's the creator, if God's the one who decides how things are, and God is the judge of sins, why couldn't he just forgive the sins without having anybody die? It just... For some reason, that, that kind of sticks with me. Why, why did it have to be that way? Like, I trust that it was that way, but I don't understand why it had to be. You know the song, In Christ Alone? Where there's that line that says, When on the cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Was that it? Was that why Jesus had to die on the cross? Because God had all this pent-up wrath? against humans that he just had to take out on somebody and Jesus, you know, jumped in front of that bullet and took it for us so that God didn't pour out his wrath on us. He poured it out on Jesus instead. Is that why God, Jesus had to die? Because it's like maybe God could just go to an anger management class and not take his wrath thought on anybody. Doesn't that sound like maybe it would uh, work out a little bit better? And, and that's honestly, it's something my whole life as a Christian that I've struggled with. Why did anybody have to die for our sins to be forgiven? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins without having to go through the whole death and resurrection thing? But there's something in this passage that I think has finally helped me to crack it. There's a word that pops up two or three times in this in this passage that helped me to understand a little bit more why someone had to die. The word is corruption. So Paul, in his sermon, makes a big deal about whether or not Jesus' body experienced corruption or decay, as it says in some, uh, some translations. They know that David's body decayed and experienced corruption, and he's making a big deal about the fact that Jesus wasn't dead long enough before God brought him back to experience 
decay or corruption. And I was just thinking about why in the world does Paul care about what happened to David's body after he died and, and proving that Jesus' body didn't experience corruption? But think about it. Corruption is the result of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death brings corruption and decay. But that's not the only way that sin brings corruption. Sin brings corruption in all kinds of other ways too, right? The curse of sin is that it crept into the world through Adam and Eve and corrupted our world and corrupted us. And we are tainted and corrupted by sin. And God does not want to leave us in that corrupted state. So yeah, God is focused. The whole rescue plan of the gospel is about God eliminating sin. And I think that focus on eliminating sin is what people think of as God's wrath. It's not that God's angry and vengeful and needs to take his wrath out on somebody. It's that th there's a rot in the tree of humanity growing in the limbs, and God's trying to eliminate that rot before it permeates to the root and poisons the whole tree. God's wrath is directed at sin. It's not directed at people. And sure, yeah, you can step into the path of that wrath by loving sin so much that you just won't repent of it. You can, you can come upon that wrath, but, but God is more interested in eliminating sin than he is about taking his wrath out on people. Imagine this. Imagine that you die and go to heaven. Hooray, you're in heaven. And God sends you, hands you the keys to your heavenly mansion that he's been waiting for you. And then he says, all right, make sure you lock up your doors at night. There's a murderer on the loose and you don't want him getting in your house. Or there's been a string of robberies up in, in heaven on these golden streets, so make sure the jewels of your heavenly crown are sealed in tight and you lock it in your safe at night because we don't want anybody stealing your heavenly crown. That doesn't sound all very appealing. Heaven isn't heaven if there's sin there. The only way that heaven works out to be any better than earth is if there's no sin. This is why God can't just wave his hand and overlook sin. It's not enough for God to overlook our sins. He has to eliminate them. God cannot take it easy on sin because if there is sin, there is corruption. And God is bent, he's heaven bent on, on bringing about a world that is rescued from the corruption of sin. And this is why Jesus had to come and die for us. Because this is how God goes about eliminating sin. Because sin is basically selfishness, right? Go down the Ten Commandments and think about them. Stealing is basically saying, I don't care if you own this thing. 
I want it, so I'm taking it for me. I, as long as I get to have this thing, I don't care if you get to have it or not. That's what stealing is. It's prioritizing my wants over your right to own property. <laughs> right? The murder is saying, whatever I've got going on, my hatred or my anger or my greed is more important than your very life. And as long as my needs or desires are met, then you can just die for all I care. That's what murder is. It's just the ultimate form of selfishness. Adultery is saying, I don't care about your body or your marriage vows. I only care about my selfish desires. And down the list, each sin is about prioritizing our own desires over other people or over God. Idolatry is saying, God, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care about what So sin is basically selfishness right down the list. And so God's plan to rescue human beings from, from the, the corruption, corruption of sin is to, to reverse that selfishness, selfishness by, by, by committing the, the ultimate act of selflessness. The Bible, Bible says, as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, salvation enters the world through one man, Jesus. Adam committed that act of selfishness. Jesus committed that act of selflessness. Imagine being God, the most powerful being in the universe. You can create with the world. God's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He, he does not have any limitations. He doesn't ever have to experience pain or death firsthand. He can just sit up in heaven. And, and judge us and find us wanting. But instead, he voluntarily takes on a human body with all the weird and gross and limiting stuff that being a human entails. That's embarrassing for God. And then not only that, he died. He died a painful, agonizing death. God never had to experience that. He never had to do that. God hadn't sinned. God didn't need to experience the, the consequence of that corruption. He never had to do that, but he did. Because a God who did not have to put his neck out for you and me went to the cross for us in an ultimate act of selfishness, selflessness, and love. And that is why Jesus had to die because he was so invested in rooting out sin that he went to conquer sin by, by doing the anti-sin, the ultimate act of righteousness and selflessness for us. And then he conquered the consequences of sin, which is death. He did not experience corruption because he was too good and he was too powerful for the corruption of sin and death to take hold on his body. So he experiences victory over sin, victory over death, and now he offers that victory with you and me. That's the good news of the gospel. It says here that we might receive forgiveness of sins and a freedom from the consequences of sins that the law could never have given us. 
freedom from the corruption of sin and the corruption of death. Well, that sounds great, but, but you might be thinking, well, wait, Matt, Christians still die. So Christians' bodies still decay. Becoming a Christian doesn't get you a get-out-of-death-free card, if that's what you're saying. I don't know about you, but I know I'm not 100% sin-free. So does being a Christian set you free from corruption of sin and death, or does it not? I thought the whole deal with freedom from corruption was that you didn't have to experience it. But the thing is, that's where the amazing grace of God comes in. Because you don't have to look far to see corruption among Christians, unfortunately. But we're not on our own in that way. God gives us grace. And the specific kind of grace that I'm talking about today is called justifying grace. Now think for a second. We've all typed a document on a computer, right? It's 2021. I hope so. When you're typing out a document on a computer, you just send a word. There's something called justifying. You can left justify your text. And what that does is it takes all of your text and it lines it up on the left side of the page. So that each line starts in the same place on the left side. But you can also right justify a document. And it pulls all of that text over to the other side of the page. It lines it up in a straight line on the other side of the document. Heck, you can center justify a document and then it's all centered on the middle of the page. When you justify the words on your document, you pull the text to line it up on the side that you want it to be. That's kind of what justifying grace does for us. We are God's future justified humans. When we become saved, when we accept Christ's sacrifice for us in faith, God justifies us into this future that he is going to create for us, where sin is no more, where death is no longer a thing, where crying and pain and sorrow are no more. And he pulls us into that future so that when he looks at you and me, he doesn't see corrupted people who are going to die and decay one day. Instead, he sees people that he fully intends to rescue from that faith by participating in the resurrection of the body that Jesus has promised us and that we declare every Sunday in our creeds. We are God's future justified humans. We're not justified to the ways of the world and death and corruption. We are justified through his justifying grace and to the side of God and to the side of righteousness and to the side of freedom. So even though we're not fully living into that freedom yet, God has pulled us to that side through his grace, through his sacrifice, and through his love. It's kind of like a kid who's gotten accepted into college in his senior year of high school. And he hasn't started yet, but he's got that letter in his hands that says, you're one of us. 
I remember when I got accepted into Georgia Tech, I was so excited. I'm a tech student now. No, I wasn't. I'd never been to a class. I'd never set foot in class. It turns out I wasn't very good at it. But in that moment, in that moment, when I got that letter and I had it into my hand, I was, even though I had never set foot on campus before, I was a tech student. So I went out and I bought it. Yellow jacket hat, and a yellow jacket jacket, and a yellow jacket shirt. I was decked out, and I showed up at my still my high school the next day. But I wasn't a high school student. No, in my heart I knew I had been accepted into tech. Subsequently rejected a few years later. But we're not going to get into that. That's not part of the story. That's what that's what justifying grace is like for you and me. Even though we still struggle with sin on a day-to-day basis, even though death and corruption are still a part of our day-to-day lives, we have been accepted into the family of God through His justifying grace. And when God sees us, He sees the future that He's got planned for us, a future free of corruption and death. He says, God is doing something in our day that you wouldn't believe even if you were told about it. He's reversing the curse of sin. He's conquering death, and he's giving us victory. And he's inviting us into that victory with him, even before we can experience it in full. And so Paul says that in the line with the psalmist, the correct response to that gospel is to be amazed. Be amazed at what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. It can be so easy when you've been a Christian for a long time to stop being amazed at the gospel, to stop being amazed at the work that God did on the cross for you and me. But the proper response is to renew our amazement, to say, God, you have done this thing for me. It's amazing grace that you have justified me, that you no longer look at me as a sinner, but you look at me as a saint who will one day be free of the corruption of sin. Amazing. So that's our response today. Be amazed. Jesus has done this for you at every cost to himself. Whether you've been a Christian for a hundred years or if you've never accepted Christ, the answer is to be amazed that he would do that for you. And if you've never had that personal relationship with Christ before, today's the day to get started. Today's the day to get started in that future now life. That life that's free of corruption. And if you feel God pulling in your heart to join that today, I want to invite you to come down to the altar. I'll slap on a mask and I'll pray for you. Let's pray. Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that you were utterly selfless. You have every right to be filled up with yourself who deserves every bit of praise and glory we can muster for you. You did not 
Consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead you humble yourself and took the form of a servant, even unto death to the cross. You have done this for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You did that. And God, you invite us to respond. God, whether that response is to just be amazed once more that we get to participate in this life of faith, or if it's to come and respond and become a, a person of faith for the first time. God, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts, and I pray that you will do a work in our world that, looking back on it, we would never have believed, even if you were to tell us about it right now. God, show up for us and do a mighty work in our presence. In your name I pray.